Okay, so this is chapter 21, and the title of this chapter in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit, is the title of the book, Grace and Grit. So... In this part of the story, we find out exactly where these words came from, what they mean, and how Treya expressed them. And she's not in a good way. Things keep escalating, her tumours keep expanding. And on the orthodox medical side, the doctors are saying, well, you're dying. You won't live very much longer at all. And basically your only option is to go on continuous chemotherapy. And even that won't really help. And on the other side, where she's doing this Gonzalez program, this doctor is saying, no, you need to understand that this is part of the process. The tumours are dying. The tumours are being burnt off. And if you look at what happens when a star dies, and of course you remember that Treya comes from the word Estrella, Estrella, which in Spanish means star. So Treya is a star. And look at an actual star. You see what actually happens when a star dies. Well, it expands. It expands rapidly. Bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter until it explodes. And when it explodes, it explodes into a dazzling array of colourful nebula. And then it can collapse or turn into a black star, a black hole. And there's a whole bunch of physics there which... We don't need to get into. But the same thing, well, it's happening with Treya's tumours, but it's also happening with Treya. It's happening with her sense of spirit, with her self-knowledge. It's expanding into a brilliant light. Now, up until now, she's had many big shifts. But something is beginning to happen, or continuing to happen, which is beyond a shift, which is that it's all coming into one giant moment. And this can happen under certain life circumstances. Normally, we have our normal life, 
And every now and then we have a big shift. And if the shift is big enough, we say, well, that changed my life. But Trey is really beyond that. At this stage, she's having multiple shifts. She's having multiple changes. And it's all snowballing into this singular moment, which is her experience with passionate equanimity. So she continues to write letters to her family and friends to express herself and to tell them all how she's doing. She says that she's basically living like a little old lady. So she sleeps as late as she can. She enjoys a quiet cup of tea. She doesn't travel much. She doesn't like the stress of travel. But she might forget something. She just likes to curl up by the fire on a cold winter evening or cuddle with Ken and the dogs. And she prefers to look out at the mountains rather than reading. And she's still on her program. She's still on her pill-chomping seven times a day, vitamins, strict diet. And she's still on oxygen almost all the time. And yet she's still managing to keep doing her walk on the treadmill. And she also reflects on the different things that she's learnt over her last few years. And she, she has this thing which she calls the psychic immune system. And this is, well, it's your psychic or your spirit as well as your psychology. And this is to do with the interpersonal and the relationships that you have and the people that interact with you. And she talks about, well, she's learnt how to have a psychic immune system. So just like your body has an immune system where it identifies things that aren't meant to be there and then works against them and protects against them and gets them out, flushes them out or kills them, on a cellular level, well, the same thing can be said of your psychology. The same thing can be said of your beliefs coming to you or the beliefs that are coming to you via people's opinions. And, well, Trey's immune system has had a lot of tests over the last few years. It's had a lot of things put against it. And that's one of the ways, well, how do you how do you strengthen the immune system or how do you inoculate something? Like a vaccine, a vaccine is actually, well, it's a lesser version of the disease that you're vaccinating against. Which means that You give yourself a disease so that your immune system learns like a test run of how to deal with it. And your immune system is aware of it and has learnt that so that when the real thing comes along, they go, oh, 
Okay, so I know how to deal with this. Now on a psychological level, well, Trey has had all sorts of things thrown at her. She's had the new age paradigm and positive thinking and beliefs around affirmations and different religious leaders, people's opinions, people's fears of why did you get cancer? Why do we get cancer? Why do we have illness? And she's had many interactions with people over the last few years of all varying degrees. And then there's also the decisions that she's made. Conflicting opinions of doctors, choosing treatments, unknowns, medical anomalies, test results. All of this has been testing Treya. It's all been put against her psychic immune system. And now she feels, well, she wants people to understand that. She wants people to feel empowered to say, no, that treatment's not for me, or no, you're not the right therapist for me, or no, this isn't the right decision, or no, I don't need to believe that, or no, I don't want to think about that. And to be able to do that, of course, without being afraid of some sort of unexamined resistance coming up and being used as, well, oh, you're just being defensive because it's your resistance. So her message is simple, but hard one. And her message is this, trust yourself. Trust your psychic immune system. And she continues to talk to people on the phone, as well as sending her letters. So she's very big on empathy and compassion. She does keep working with Ken, who's now full-time caring for her. And there's one moment where she says to Ken how sorry she is that cancer has ruined his career. And he just looks at her and says, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. As if to say, that's no problem at all. And there's no reason for you to be sorry. And it's around this point, when she's writing this letter and telling this incident of Ken saying that he's the luckiest guy in the world, that she stops writing. And she stops writing because she goes blind in her left eye. And the tests confirm that the tumours in her brain are affecting the optic centre. Which means that prob probably Treya has permanently lost all vision in her left eye.
So the tumour is so big that it's actually pressing into her eyes and affecting that. So they start her on this drug called Decadron, which is a powerful steroid. And this will control brain swelling for perhaps a month or two. But at the end of that time, it will cease to be effective. It's only a short-term fix. And that would mean that, well, at the end of that time, Trey's brain tissue will continue to be smashed and destroyed. Which means rapid loss of function would come and pain will grow unbearable. And then we'll be looking at the options of, well, continuous morphine delivery. And the enzyme program, well, it keeps working because now it's a race against time. Because Treya's body, well, it has to dispose of the wastes, whether caused by growing cancer or dying of tumour cells or not. But either way, the pressure build-up of the simple mass might kill her. And she has more tests. And she's still persistent. She's still staying with passionate equanimity. And there are now 60 spots on her lungs. Her liver is swelling up. And it's now pushing entirely across her abdomen, cramping her intestines. And the pressure on her brain is slowly increasing. She still has to check her blood sugar value five or six times a day. She has to give herself insulin shots. She has to still take her over 150 pills. Her enemas, waking up in the middle of the night for more pills. And yet she was still, each day, getting on her treadmill and walking two or three miles, even with her oxygen line over her shoulder. And it's around this time that Treya and Ken start to have spooky things happen between them. And Ken describes this as a genuinely psychic bond. And he means psychic by paranormal. And of course he does say, well, these things of paranormal activities, they do exist, but they don't interest him much. They have very little to do with his interests in mysticism. And there are plenty of charlatan psychics that have given the whole field a bad name. So he's reluctant to talk about this. But what happens is, well, he begins to anticipate her every need. So much so that he intuits her needs or desires before she even spoke them. She might say, oh, I need an egg, and he'll say, oh, it's already cooking. And then she'll say, oh, I think I need 17 units of insulin today. And he'll say, here it is, with the exact amount, the exact proportion, right on time. They're moving into a oneness. They're really becoming one person, one mind. And then another evening, 
Treya became violently ill. She has a horrible headache. Her whole body is shaking. She's having visual problems in her good eye. So Ken calls the doctor at his home home number. And he says he's seen all the latest evidence and he's still of the strongest opinion that Treya's symptoms are consistent with tumour decay and inflammation. Ken calls the emergency room and asks to see an emergency brain scan. Fearing there might be a brain seizure happening, so he straps the oxygen to her and rushes her to the ER. And then 15 minutes later, she's on high doses of Decrajon and morphine. The swelling in her brain is out of control. A few days later, she goes in for brain surgery. And during this operation, the large mass is removed. And the doctors tell her, well, she'll have to be in hospital for at least five days, maybe more. And yet, three days later, with her little oxygen tank strapped on and a hat over her head, she walks out of the hospital. And they go out for lunch. They have some chicken while she's given herself insulin shots. And she goes right back to her program with passionate equanimity. The pills, the enemas, the insulin, the diets, the liver flushes. And each day on her walker, each day on her treadmill, cranking out a few miles with the oxygen behind her. And there's something to understand at this point in the narrative about the moment of death and its relation to the perennial philosophy and mysticism. And it is such that, well, the great wisdom traditions maintain that the actual moment of death is extremely important. It's an opportunity. And the reason is, well, because at the moment of death, the person has dropped the physical body And therefore, the higher dimensions, the subtle and the causal, flash in the deceased's awareness. And the story goes that if the person can recognize these higher and spiritual dimensions, then the person can acknowledge immediate enlightenment, and so much more so easily than when the the dense and obstructing physical body is there. So the actual moment of death is actually when all the levels from the bottom to the top are dissolving. And that leaves you with causal spirit. His or her own true nature. And that is a return permanently to Godhead as Godhead. Now, it takes an awareness to recognize this. And if it's not recognized, according to the traditions of 
pre-modernity, then the person or the soul enters into an intermediate state, which is called the bardo in Buddhism. And this is said to last a few months. So you stay in the bardo with a soul, as a soul. The subtle levels emerge, and then eventually the gross levels emerge again. and The person is reborn in a physical body to begin a new life. So your soul is the same, but you don't come back with your memories. So there's no specific memories, but the soul is the same. Now, whatever we might think about the notion of reincarnation or bardo or afterlife states, so much is certain, this much at least is certain, which is that if you at all believe that some part of you takes part in the divine, if you at all believe that you have access to some sort of spirit that transcends your mortal body in any sense, then the moment of death is crucial. Because at that point, the mortal body is gone. And if there is anything that remains, well, that is the time to find out. And this is what we talk about when we're talking about near-death experiences. And there is research on near-death experiences, which support this which show that there is a difference between the physical body and the causal realms. And when you die, there's a separation of those two. Now, it doesn't matter what you believe or whether you, if this sounds too religious or not, all we need to emphasize is that, well, there are specific meditation exercises that precisely rehearse this entire process of death and disillusion. And Ken and Treya are aware of these, and they're practicing these. And actually, Ken takes a few days off, caring for Treya, to go and visit one of his teachers. And this teacher was advising Ken on exactly this moment, the moment of death. So they're prepared They're aware of what's happening. And they're awake to the truths that lie between life and death. And they're ready to find them for themselves. So when Ken returns, well, Treya begins to go through quite a tough period of dealing with her comfort discomfort and her pain which was severe at times and she was actually refusing medication she wasn't on any tranquilizers or painkillers or morphine because she wanted to be clear and to witness what's happening and the after effects of the brain surgery combined with continual swelling of the tumors and the lungs and the liver They're taking a terrible toll on her body. And yet she's still remaining with her program in all aspects. And yes, she's still walking a few miles a day on her treadmill. And yet they continue to increase the oxygen. They continue to increase the decadrogen. And it came to New Year's Day. 
where Ken and Treya are on the couch. And Treya turns to Ken and says, Honey, I think it's time to stop. I don't want to go on. It's not much that I feel like quitting. It's that even if the enzymes are working, they aren't going to work fast enough. And Ken knows that, well, Trey has already made up her mind. And as always is the case, well, when she's made up her mind, she just wants him to get behind her. So he says to her, it doesn't look good, does it? And he says, I suppose I'd say, let's give it one more week just in case. Because actually the brain tumour that they removed during her surgery was 90% dead tissues. Which means the enzymes are working. They are having their effect. And there still might be a chance but it's up to Treya to decide. And Ken says, tell me what you want to do and we'll do it. And she looks right at him and says, okay, one more week. I can do that. One more week. So she keeps her word and for one week she pushes, pushes through the extremely rapidly growing agony and she stayed right with her program every single detail of it and yet still didn't take any morphine and for her it was a matter of well walk on as the old zen master would say walk on And this is, well, enlightened equanimity that Ken has never, ever seen equaled. And at the end of that week, she said to Ken, I'm going. And all he said was, okay. So he picks her up to carry her upstairs and she says wait a second wait a second I want to write something in my journal so he gets her journal and a pen and in big bold words she writes it takes grace yes and grit And she looks at Ken and asks, do you understand? And he paused for a long time. And it wasn't necessary for him to say anything because she knew he understood. All things beautiful 
have a way of becoming ripe. And all things ripe want to die. Treya is ripe and she wants to die. And as Ken watches her write this in the diary, what he was thinking was, what he didn't have to say was, these words summarise her entire life. Grace and grit. Being and doing. Equanimity and passion. Surrender and will. Total acceptance and fierce determination. Those two sides of her soul. The two sides she had wrestled with all her life. The two sides she is now finally bringing together into one harmonious whole. That was the last message she wanted to leave. The last thing she wanted to say. And Ken has seen her passionate equanimity come to define her very soul. And her one major overriding life goal she had accomplished. And that accomplishment has been tested in circumstances that would simply shatter a lesser soul. And so she's ready. She's found her deepest wisdom. And she wants to die. Ken picks her up and carries her up the stairs for the very last time. And that's where that chapter ends. So we will find out what happens in the last chapter, which will be coming up very soon. And that's all I have to say for now.